This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the topic we're going to discuss tonight is the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. And before we jump into details, I want to speak with you first about how significant and important a topic this is. Towards the end of his pontificate, Pope St. John Paul II issued an apostolic letter called Novo Millennio Ineunte. And in this apostolic letter, in paragraph 43, he outlined a vision, his vision, for the church in the third millennium. Where is the church called to go? By what way is she followed, called to follow and walk uh, in the new millennium, in the, in the millennium ahead? And the answer that he gave is in paragraph 43, and here's what he says. To make the church the home and the school of communion, that is the great challenge facing us in the millennium, which is now beginning. If we wish to be faithful to God's plan and respond to the world's deepest yearnings. But what does this mean in practice? Here, too, our thoughts could run immediately to the action to be undertaken. But that would not be the right impulse to follow. Before making practical plans, we need to promote a spirituality of communion, making it the guiding principle of education. Wherever individuals and Christians are formed, wherever ministers of the altar, consecrated persons and pastoral workers are trained, wherever families and communities are being built up. Okay, so let's just stop with that for a moment. What John Paul II taught us was that in order for the church to go forward into the third millennium in full vigor as and to become who she was created, called, and you know, graced in Christ to be and to become, the church needs this spirituality of communion. And he's quite well aware that you and I are already asking, you know, what does that mean, like, practically speaking? But he says, before you even get to practical questions about what to do, steps to take, techniques, methods, plans of action, or anything like that, there first needs to be this spirituality of communion. And what then does that consist of? And he goes on to say, a spirituality of communion indicates, above all, the heart's contemplation of the mystery of the Trinity dwelling in us. A spirituality of communion indicates above all, the heart's contemplation of the mystery of the Trinity dwelling in us. So that's what Pope St. John Paul II set before us in one of his last uh, documents that he sent to the whole church and outlines his vision for the future. We need this spirituality of communion. And what that means, above all, is this awareness, the heart's contemplation of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. Now, he goes on to say many other things about this spirituality of communion, but I want to pause with just the first thing that he says, and the thing that he says is first and most fundamental, this heart's contemplation of the indwelling of the Trinity. That's our topic tonight. We want to zero in on that, focus on that, because 
of this great significance John Paul II saw in it. Do we want to be the church fully alive? We need then to be fixed, focused, centered on this indwelling of the Holy Trinity. So let's try to unpack this with the help of two saints. We're going to look, first of all, to St. Thomas Aquinas and his teaching or doctrine on the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. And then we're going to look to St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who was a Carmelite nun in the late 19th and early 20th century. And she, in her life and in her prayer and in her experience, she is a marvelous illustration and a confirmation of the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas and also is an example for you and I to receive and follow in order to live this spirituality of communion, this deep awareness of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity that John Paul II calls us to. So let's begin first with the doctrine of St. Thomas Aquinas on the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. There's many points that I'm gonna make that are in a certain sense basic, but in a certain sense, they're very deep that St. Thomas lays it out for us. And we're gonna go through them and just try to unfold them one at a time and talk about them a little bit. So the first thing is a, a basic summary of the doctrine of the indwelling. And it's very simple. The teaching is this, the Holy Trinity dwells within the souls of the just. Now, just that by itself is something that we need to stop and ponder because it's the sort of thing that can go in one ear and out the other if we're not careful. The Holy Trinity dwells within the souls of the just. So there's two things to pick up on here, or actually three. First of all, we have the Holy Trinity, the mention of this great mystery God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternal mystery of, of light and love and life that is God himself, one divine reality, three distinct persons. And these, this mystery, this whole reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells within, within us, within the souls of the just, okay? Who are the just? That's the question we need to ask. The just are those who live in the grace of God, okay? So now this raises an interesting question. Does the Holy Trinity dwell everywhere and in absolutely everyone? Or is it just in persons? Or is it just in certain persons? So let's try to unpack it a little bit more. Here's another point. The indwelling of the Holy Trinity that we're talking about here tonight is proper to persons rather than things or just everything out there. And it's more than the presence of God in all things. So there's a way in which God is present in all things, both the persons and the subpersonal things around us in nature. Uh, God is present in them in various modes, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. God is present in things according to his essence. He's giving them He's giving them being, and he's, he's within them, and their very active existence flows from him. So that would be one mode of his presence, his presence by his essence. There's also his presence by power. That is, God directs all things according to his providential designs. God has a plan for the world, and in his plan for the world, he creates things with 
certain natures and those natures have inclinations to their proper ends and proper operations. And God moves things and directs things, all things, to carry out and to exercise their proper operations and fulfill their ends, realize the ends for which he made them. And in order to direct them and, and lead them, he continues to move them uh, here and there according to their natures, but also sometimes in extraordinary ways as well. And that's God's presence by power, moving, directing, leading all things according to his eternal designs for all of creation. So he does this with persons, but also things less than human beings as well in nature. He does it for all the trees and for all the brute animals around us and for everything. I mean, every sunrise, every sunset, every drop of rain, it's all an unfolding of God's action and a sign of his presence by power. But there's also another way in which God is present to all, all things, all of his creation. And that is he's present by, well, his presence. What St. Thomas means is that God sees all things. All things unfold in his view, in his, in, under his gaze. So nothing escapes his sight. Nothing is beyond him. So this is God's presence that's common to all things in nature. Sometimes it's called the natural presence of God or natural modes of his presence. And it's God's presence by essence, by power, and by his presence or by his glance upon all things. So that's the way in which God is present both to persons and to everything else in creation, commonly speaking. But, and here's the, a third big point I want to make, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in the, in the souls of the just is something over and above that common presence by which God is present to all things and to all persons. The indwelling of the Holy Trinity in the souls of the just is a special gift of his grace. So God, very mysteriously, lavishes his grace, his gifts, upon some more than others. He has eternal designs of love. And in his eternal designs of love, it pleases him, for reasons that are mysterious to us but known to him, it pleases him to, to bless, to give grace to some people more than others. That's what he does. He, he pours out his grace on some more than others. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with that because he gave a measure of grace to the Blessed Virgin Mary far and beyond any kind of gift, grace, or blessing that he's given to anyone else. And similarly with St. Joseph, he gave St. Joseph such a vast grace. No one else is going to be able to come close to that. God just doesn't have it in his plan to give other people the marvelous, amazing graces that he gave to the Blessed Virgin Mary and to St. Joseph. But God has his designs, his plans to love other people marvelously well in a special way and, in, and to become present to them in a manner beyond this presence that he has in all things by creation or by nature. He gives some people, those whom he chooses and calls, a gift of grace. We'll say a little bit more about that later, the choosing and the calling. Okay, so we can take this a step further. How does this grace work? Let's think about Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, the love of God 
has been poured forth into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That verse from St. Paul is one of the kernel or core proclamations of the gospel. And St. Thomas Aquinas loves to come back to that passage again and again and again. The love of God has been poured forth into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's a certain truth of faith, a certain divinely revealed truth, which has been set before us. And the truth is this, that God has poured forth the grace of the Holy Spirit. And he's poured forth the grace of the Holy Spirit into the depths of our hearts. Let's stop for a moment and think about what we mean by the term heart. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this in his biblical commentaries and in other places. And it's a term that has many meanings. And St. Thomas recognizes that it has many meanings. It has a whole range of meanings in scripture. But one of its basic meanings, most important meanings, the heart signifies sort of the spiritual powers of the soul, intellect and will. You will recall that the intellect and will are immaterial powers. They're not the activities of organs, but they form or constitute this uh, spiritual part of the soul that goes by various names. Sometimes it's just called spirit with a little s. Sometimes it's called mind or mens in Latin. And sometimes it's called heart. The heart is the spiritual part of the soul, the intellect and will. And the way that St. Thomas describes the working of this grace is that this grace is, is uh, flooded. It floods into the very essence of the soul, he says, and then it flows into all the powers of the soul, but it's going to flow first and principally into those spiritual powers, which we can call our heart. So the, the very love of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit has been poured forth into the depths of our souls, into our hearts. Okay, now when that happens to us, and that happens because of God's what? His, his gratuitous love, his, his, his merciful love. And there's nothing on our part that deserves it, merits it, or has a right to it, uh, not by nature. And God simply gives this grace to us, and he does so because his son, Jesus Christ, his eternal son, whom he sent as the incarnate word, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, intercedes for us, and asks for us to receive this gift. And as the scriptures say, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift, okay? So Christ gives this grace according to a measure, and those who are whom God chooses and calls, and give, he gives this grace and pours it into our hearts. Now, when this gift is given, this grace is given to us, and it's given to us principally in our baptism, something marvelous takes place within us. Something marvelous takes place in the depths of our soul. When the Holy Spirit is given to us, the entire Holy Trinity is given to us along with the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's listen to John chapter 14, verse 21. This is in the Last Supper Discourse in the Gospel of John. Jesus says this, If anyone keeps my commandments, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. So here you, you have Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, talking about he and the Father, 
and he and the father coming and the father and the son make their home in the person. And this comes only a couple of verse, a couple of verses after Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us and dwelling within us. So within just a few verses of the Gospel of John, we have reference, we have a scriptural teaching that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live and dwell within the souls of the just by grace, okay? So that's just a marvelous thing to stop and consider how we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living within us so long as we are living in his grace, in a habitual state of grace. But we can go further and say more. It's not only that we become his, his home or his temple, although we do, what, what does that mean? Let's try to unpack it a little bit more. So here's another point. The grace of God floods our souls and it forms the soul and all the powers of the soul with many different virtues and gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. And all of these are called created graces. So, for example, a person is going to receive, when, when a person's soul is flooded with grace, the person is going to receive faith and hope and love, the theological virtues. The person will also receive all of the infused moral virtues, prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude, and all of the little virtues, the associated virtues and the parts of all those virtues that go with them, the person will receive all that and the grace of God will flow from the essence of the soul into the powers, modify and shape the powers of the soul so that the power now has these virtues, these dispositions for good action. And that is part of or a fruit of his grace working within us. There's also and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that St. Thomas talks about, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, counsel, piety, fortitude, fear of the Lord, and all of the fruits of the Spirit and all of the Beatitudes, all of that is, flows from the grace of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and flows into the powers of our soul, modifies and shapes and transforms us. This is part of what it means to be in a state of grace or a habit, the habitual grace of God are these modifications that he gives with us or communicates to us or transmits to us, only they remain in us as abiding dispositions so long as we don't destroy the gift by mortal sin. But all of these uh, virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit, these are all what we can call created grace. They are features or qualities that you and I receive that are truly yours and truly mine, and they're, they are finite, so they're created. They're given to us by God. But created grace, this is a very important principle now, created grace has for its object and its end nothing less than God himself, okay? So the reason why God gives us all this created grace is for the sake of him. He himself is the point and is the object of all this created grace. And because of this created grace, we are able to be with God, interact with God, engage with God, relate to God, respond to God, be intimate with God, and live with God and in God in a manner 
that is totally beyond our capacities just by nature. Our human nature just simply does not have it in it to live with God and interact with God in a way that's as immediate and as personal and as intimate and as profound as grace makes possible for you and for me, as created grace makes possible for you and for me. It would be like asking a fish to speak English. Uh, the fish just doesn't have it in its nature to do so. And likewise, you and I just do not have it in our nature, in our human nature, to be able to be personally interactive with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't even know of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by nature. And we certainly aren't capable of becoming personal friends with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just by our nature. Aristotle has an interesting remark he makes in the Nicomachean Ethics and his discussion of friendship. Along the way, as he's discussing friendship, someone asks him, is it possible to be friends with God? And Aristotle says simply, no, it's impossible. Human beings and God have nothing in common. And he moves on. And he, that's all he has to say. But what's so interesting is that Aristotle tells the truth there precisely about human nature. Human nature just doesn't have what it takes to be personal friends with God. There's like an infinite distance between God and our humanity. But when we receive all this created grace, we are equipped, disposed, uh, proportioned to God so that we can actually know and love and interact with and engage and live with and enjoy the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit personally, interiorly, and not in a manner in which God is infinitely far off, but in a way in which he lives in the very depths of our souls by grace. So let's try to explain this a little bit more by focusing on two of the virtues that come to us by God's grace. First of all, the grace of the Holy Spirit works faith in us. Now, faith is a virtue that modifies our intellect, and it inclines the person to voluntarily assent to the whole truth that God has revealed to us and sets before us through the preaching and teaching of the church. The whole truth that's summed up and contained in scripture and tradition and which is proclaimed to us that Jesus is Lord, he's risen from the dead, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the truth about the sacraments, about the Blessed Virgin Mary, all of that. Faith receives, welcomes, and affirms all of that divinely revealed truth thanks to this virtue. That's what faith is. It's a virtue that inclines a person voluntarily to accept all of that truth with a kind of simplicity and without inference, you know, not, not figuring it all out philosophically, as if we could philosophically work out uh, the truth of all those revealed articles of faith. That's not possible, okay? Now, when we receive this virtue of faith, though, the faith that's in us is a likeness to the Word of God, the eternal Son of God, because the Word of God, the eternal Son of God, is the truth. He's the eternal truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what we receive in faith and by faith 
is precisely the truth, the eternal truth. And so the faith that's in us is a likeness to the word of God, the eternal son. Sometimes this could be called, or St. Thomas does sometimes call it the invisible mission of the word, okay, that's in us. So that when, when God lives and dwells within us, he's carrying something out. He's giving us this faith and he's illuminating our intellect so that it's like the very son of God, the eternal son of God, who is the truth. But there's another thing the Holy Spirit does, or the grace of the Holy Spirit works in us. In addition to faith, he works charity in us. Now, charity is also one of the theological virtues, and charity is a virtue that modifies our will. And St. Thomas uh, defines it or understands it as friendship with God. We can think of it as relationship. It's a personal relationship, a friendship with God. And this charity you know, has, has the, all the things that are involved in, char- in friendship are involved in this charity. So there's life together, and then there's, there's doing good things one for another. There's goodwill towards one another. There's the exchange of favors. There's union of intentions. There's affection, certainly our affection for Christ and Christ's affection for us. All of this is involved in charity. Now, this charity that's in our souls and modifies and shapes our will, you could say it inflames or enkindles our will, is a likeness of the personal love between the Father and the Son. And that personal love between the Father and the Son is the very Holy Spirit himself. So there's something in the depths of our soul that's like the Holy Spirit, and that is the very charity that we have within us. And St. Thomas has some marvelous passages where he talks about uh, this invisible mission of the spirit and also the invisible mission of the word and spirit, where he talks about how when God illuminates the mind or illuminates the intellect with this light, it, it produces knowledge within us, but not just any kind of knowledge. It produces a knowledge that bursts forth in love, in charity, in, in a loving responsiveness to God. So God is carrying out uh, this work within us. He's, he's illuminating our intellects and he's, he's enkindling our will with love. Okay, <clears throat> now there's more to say. Let's try to say a little bit more because God is doing more than just giving us faith and love. The grace of the Holy Spirit also gives us further gifts, such as the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom, just to give a couple of examples. The gift of understanding, St. Thomas is so clear, allows a person to receive with a kind of docility um, or a certain amenability. The Spirit's gift of understanding allows the person to receive many lights and insights into the mysteries of the faith. So if you're ever just sort of um, kind of pondering and and thinking about things and, and one of the mysteries of the faith, so the incarnation or something about Our Lady or about the Trinity or about the Eucharist, if one of these mysteries just kind of um, lights up for you and you just notice something or see something that you never noticed or saw before, and it seems deep to you, and it didn't come about necessarily by you uh, figuring it out theologically or, or doing some kind of inference, that that is likely a light Uh, and a a movement of the spirit of understanding that's lighting up the intellect and helping you 
or me to see in a manner of speaking, the meaning of the mysteries of faith. So that's, that's one example, the Spirit's gift of understanding. Let's take another example, the Spirit's gift of wisdom. St. Thomas describes the gift of wisdom as a gift that makes a person able to easily or with, with a kind of amenability to the movement of the Spirit. It makes the person docile to a certain kind of contemplation of God where the person can taste and see the goodness of the Lord and actually has a kind of perception, an experiential knowledge, St. Thomas calls it, or a perception of God himself, and can even have a kind of perception or an awareness of God inhabiting the soul, okay? Now, not all the knowledge of the indwelling is the Spirit's gift of wisdom. I want to be clear about that. But there's no doubt that the Spirit's gift of wisdom also brings with it a kind of experiential knowledge of God, okay? So when a person has been flooded with God's grace, okay, many things are going on in the person's soul. Faith and love and the Spirit's gifts flow from the grace of God working in us. And, and all of these virtues and the gifts of the Trinity living in us, they also have the triune God himself as their very object. In other words, the whole point of faith and, and charity and of the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom is to have God, the triune God, as the object of one's knowledge and love and enjoyment, okay? So these are capacities, they're kind of upgrades, so to speak, from human nature that capacitate the person to engage with, interact with, respond to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living within. And we can have the Holy Trinity himself as our very object, or that is, that is the one who's given to us and becomes available to us for knowing and loving. And for knowing and loving in an immediate, that is non-inferential, personal and experiential way. So thanks to these gifts, we are no longer restricted to thinking about God philosophically and trying to infer our way up to the existence of God as like the inference to the best explanation or the inference to the only explanation of the world or of motion or causation or something like that. We can transcend merely philosophical knowledge of God and we can enter into a knowledge of God that is immediate, non-inferential, is very personal, very experiential, very intimate. Now, this is worth pausing with because something very significant is happening, or we've come to a very significant point here. St. Thomas Aquinas says in one place, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, quote, the purpose of life is to know God, end quote. That's such a simple, beautiful statement, so clear. The purpose of life is to know God. Well, let's think about this. If the purpose of life is to know God, then these created graces of faith and charity and the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom and these invisible missions of the Word and Spirit, if all of this going on within us allows us to know God in this personal, 
an experiential way in this immediate way, what that implies is that these created graces sort of place us or put us at the very end, the ultimate end of our life. They put us in contact with God himself. That's the point of, of being alive. That's the point of existing, to know God. And it's these gifts, these created graces that put us there, that give us him or make him available to us and us present to him. Okay. Now we want to be clear, just because we have these created graces doesn't mean we're in heaven yet. We don't have the beatific vision. That's true. But we have the very same God that we will have in heaven dwelling in our souls now in this life by grace. St. Thomas says so clearly, by faith, eternal life is begun in us. That means the very life of heaven, the very life of the whole supernatural mystery and communion of heaven, that mystery, that life, that reality, heaven is already present in our souls by grace, according to the substance, St. Thomas says, meaning we don't see it yet, but we have the reality nonetheless. And what we have is a kind of perception that's higher than what human nature can do on its own without grace, but less than what we're going to enjoy and, and know in heaven when we have the light of glory. Still, that's marvelous, right? That means we're on the way now to our, to our final beatitude, which is God himself. And there's something of our final beatitude, which has already been given to us, God himself has been given to us and he lives and dwells within our souls for us to know him and love him in this interior and intimate personal way. We can go further though. St. Thomas Aquinas says this, quote, to know the Trinity in unity is the joy and the end of our whole lives, end quote. Now that's a marvelous passage as well. To know the Trinity in unity is the joy and end of our whole lives. So when we use our faith and our charity and receive uh, the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom and, these, and the, the movement, the action of God blowing through the virtues and the gifts and these invisible missions of the Word and Spirit are taking place within us, we are able to know the Trinity in unity. And we have come to and reached the joy and the end of our whole lives. In other words, beatitude, ultimate beatitude is ours. And, and we're still on the way. Something's already given, but it's not yet fully complete or fulfilled. We don't yet have the vision, but we're on the way to it. And we have a kind of foretaste of it, the very reality, which is in us that we believe in by faith and respond to in love. Okay, well, let's sum all, start to summarize what all this means. It means that the person who lives habitually in the grace of God is a temple of the Trinity. And St. Thomas Aquinas will say that, a temple. The heart is the place where the person can meet the Trinity by grace, by grace. And this, this deep place within us and the depths of our souls where faith modifies the intellect, charity modifies the, the will and the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom light up the intellect uh, and, and the will. 
when enkindle the will with love, and we can interact with God and know him uh, more and more personally and interiorly and profoundly. We can experience the Trinity and enjoy the Holy Trinity. And this life of living in union with God, which begins in our baptism, is meant to grow more and more over the course of our life. Holy Communion and all the other sacraments serve this, this end. They, uh, Holy Communion is given to us to, to grow, to nurture this life of grace within us. And the sacrament of penance is there to restore this life of grace if it's lost. And for us to be renewed in this gift of knowing the Trinity and enjoying the Trinity within us. The person who lives in grace is also subject to the influence of the Trinity. It's the spirit dwelling in us who likens us to the word. And the word is in turn, uh, it, and the word of God is turned to the father in love. Knowing the father, loving the father, obeying the father, thanking the father, adoring the father, and worshiping the father. So when this grace is given to us and the spirit works within us, we become gradually and slowly by steps and by stages, increasingly more Christ or Christ-like, Christ-like, but also truly, truly Christ, truly Jesus in the depths of our souls. And because Christ, Jesus is turned to the Father, loves him, obeys him, and worships him, we too turn to the Father, love him, obey him, and worship him. And all of this takes place by the power of the Spirit as we are conformed to Christ and turned towards the Father more and more. It's kind of life in the Trinity. And that's what grace is, a participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. Now, all of this takes place in a, in a particular soul. All of this takes place according to, to God's eternal designs for the soul. So God has his plans and his designs for each and every person for each and every soul. And from all eternity, God has a plan to bless people. He blesses them. He gives them grace upon grace, and he leads them to salvation. Now, the, the eternal plan of God to form the saints in time. So God has a plan to form the saints in time and over time. That plan to form the saints for the sake of eternal life with him that plan is called predestination. It's the language of St. Paul, and it's the language of St. Augustine, and the language of St. Thomas Aquinas. So what is predestination? Predestination is not what John Calvin said, which is it's God creates some people in order to save them, and he creates other people precisely in order to damn them. No, that's not it. That's not predestination. Predestination is the plan of God the eternal plan of God, for your sanctification and mine. And it's the eternal plan of God to give you and me the grace of our baptism, for example. That grace that you received in baptism flows out from God's eternal designs. He planned from all ages to give you that grace and for you to receive it. And it was the eternal plan of God to give you the grace of each and every holy communion you have ever received and me. Each one of those communions and all the grace that comes forth in our souls from it, it's all planned from all eternity. 
And each absolution, every time you go to the sacrament of penance and your sins are forgiven and grace is renewed in your soul, that's by the eternal designs of God. And every other grace you have ever received uh, from every time you've ever picked up the scriptures, prayed the rosary, called upon the name of Jesus, or just received a grace out of the blue, out of nowhere, all of that grace that has ever come to you has come to you according to God's eternal designs. And he is like a master craftsman who is working to form his work of art according to his eternal image, which is Jesus Christ. He's working to form you in the likeness of Christ as a, and, and flooded with the spirit and turned towards the father. He's working to transform you into that more and more and more as time goes on. So from all eternity, God is working to form temples of the Holy Trinity, we could say, in each one of us. Or more specifically, God is working to form the one temple of the Holy Trinity, which is the church. And the one whole Christ, which he beholds from all eternity. And he's working to form you and I to take our place in that whole Christ. And God is working from all eternity to form sons in the sun, to use the scriptural expression, or to form the whole Christ. Because what God is working towards is, is transforming us into Christ. Okay, So all of that is a, is a kind of summary of the teaching on the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and grace and predestination and conformity to Christ that we find in St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, what I want to do is turn to another saint in order to provide an illustration for all of these teachings that's a little bit more concrete or down to earth. So St. Elizabeth of the Trinity was a contemplative soul and a saint who understood all of this intuitively and personally from her prayer life and from reading of the, of the Holy Scripture. So let's talk a little bit about her. Born in 1880, Elizabeth was a prayerful young woman. And at the age of nine, she received her first Holy Communion. She was born in France. And they had a custom in her town, in Dijon, France, where she was raised and lived, that when young girls received their Holy Communion, they were taken to the local Carmelite monastery and they would meet the prioress of the monastery. So on the day of her first Holy Communion, she went to meet the prioress of the local Carmelite monastery. The prioress met her and asked what her name was, and she said, Elizabeth. And the prioress said to her, your name, Elizabeth, means house of God. And when she heard that, when Elizabeth heard that, that her, her name meant house of God, she was taken very profoundly and captivated by this simple statement. She was told that she is a house of God. And from that point on, she lived her life with a profound and radical devotion to the simple truth that God dwelt in her soul by grace. Now, how did she do that? She, she had, in many ways, a normal kind of youth, and she was an adventurous young girl, and 
her youth and her teenage years were full of a lot of normal activities. I mean, she loved fashion and she was into a lot of the fashion concerns and sort of middle-class French society at the end of the 19th century. She was a marvelous piano player and she was a poet. And uh, she and her family took many vacations in the countryside and she loved the contemplation of nature. Nature really spoke to her of God very powerfully and it, it resonated in the depths of her soul very deeply. And she was extremely responsive to God as he sort of showed himself to her in nature. So in many ways, she was a normal uh, young woman, but she also had an intensely prayerful side to her. And many people remarked on her prayerfulness and uh, her self-possession. She was extremely prayerful. They noticed this in church, sort of the intensity with which she pray prayed. But she had a marvelous self-possession, not only while she prayed, but even outside of, of church when she was at parties or social gatherings or whatnot. She had a tremendous character, a kind of calm and equilibrium about her. Everything was really in order in her soul. There was a tremendous amount of yeah, self-possession, integration there. But what people remarked most about in St. Elizabeth was her gaze. They noticed her eyes and they all remarked, so many people remarked and they leave us testimonies, that she had an amazing gaze. They could just see that her, she was always in a way somewhere else. She was always lost in contemplation she was always given to it deeply within the depths of her soul, even in the middle of social activities. And many people, remark, many people remarked on that and they could, would describe a kind of light from her eyes. And one person even says, when I look in your eyes, I see God. So she was a contemplative soul indeed. And the marvelous thing about her, though, one of the marvelous things about her is that she did not, generally speaking, receive any special or extraordinary sort of mystical phenomena, visions or elevations or locutions or anything like that. There were some very special uh, graces she received on a couple of occasions that were like that. But for the most part, she did not have any sort of extraordinary experiences like that. For the most part, her life was simply one of Christian faith and prayer, and going to Mass, and ordinary things like you and I do. But what happened was the grace of baptism flowered or took root in her. It took root in her and flowered in her to a marvelous extent. But she's really an illustration of what a baptized soul, a baptized person, is meant to be and to become. So what did she become? From her letters and her poems and her prayers and various retreat meditations that she wrote, uh, three major themes stand out. And the themes that stand out all illustrate the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas marvelously, and they reveal what John Paul II had in mind when he spoke of the spirituality of communion as a heart centered on the contemplation of the Trinity dwelling within us. So now I'm going to give you some quotes from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. She's a marvelous writer, a very beautiful writer. And so let's go through some of these. The first theme that's in her writings, very that's all over the place, is the presence of God in our souls by grace. So here's one quote from her. Quote, it seems to me that I have found heaven on earth. 
because my heaven is you, my God, and you are in my soul. You in me and I in you. May this be my motto. Now that's a marvelous statement. She's very well aware that God is living in her soul, but the way she describes it is heaven is in, in her soul. And according to the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, that's just exactly right. We have God, according to, the, to his substance, living and dwelling within us. She was aware of all that, and she lived it. She was not a trained theologian. She never went and sought out a degree in theology, but she was aware of this through uh, preaching and through her prayer life and through reading scripture and through a kind of faith, a deep faith in what she was hearing and also that intimate, immediate, personal enjoyment of the presence of God. She was very conscious of that. Here's another quote about the presence of God from her. Quote, what a joyous mystery is your presence within me in that intimate sanctuary of my soul where I can always find you, even when I do not feel your presence. Of what importance is feeling? Perhaps you are all the closer when I feel you less, end quote. Now, there's a lot packed into that. First of all, she's very aware of, well, your presence within me. But she describes the intimate sanctuary of her soul where she can always find God. But what's really worth noting here is she says she can find God even when I do not feel your presence or feel his presence. Of what importance is feeling? Okay, so what this makes clear is that this awareness, this knowledge of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity is not a feeling. It's not a mood. It is what then it is, first of all, comes about by faith. We need to believe in the Trinity and believe in the Trinity dwelling within us. But it also comes about through charity and the Spirit's gifts of understanding and wisdom and these invisible missions of the Word and Spirit in our soul. And there's a whole kind of perceptual sense or awareness that comes and goes, ebbs and flows according to the different seasons of the spiritual life within us that God walks us through and takes us through. <clears throat> but she believes in the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity, even when she doesn't feel it. And she advises other people to do the same. That's marvelous. That's, that's, it could not get better sp spiritual advice than that. Here's another quote. This is from her prayer to the Holy Trinity. Quote, give peace to my soul. Make it your heaven, your beloved dwelling, and your resting place. May I never leave you there alone, but be wholly present, my faith wholly vigilant, wholly adoring, and wholly surrendered to your creative action. So when we listen to that, we hear her say that she is aware that not only is the Trinity dwelling within her, but she senses a call and a need for the grace to remain present to the one who is present to her, to be faithful, adoring, and surrendered to what the Trinity is doing within her. That's amazing. That's a high degree of awareness of grace, of God working in her by grace, and of being turned towards God and simply being responsive to him as he is present to her. 
But she also says things like this, quote, I find him everywhere while doing the wash as well as while praying. Now that's important to note. So it's not only at times of prayer, when we get to be say alone or in solitude or in the chapel or something like that, but even throughout the course of the day, while a person is cooking, cleaning, doing the wash, doing household chores or tasks, a person can be aware, if only with a kind of background awareness, a person can be aware of the presence of the Holy Trinity dwelling within the soul, okay? And she knew this and she commends it to other people as well. So those are just a few, and believe me, they're just a few of the many examples of times she writes about the presence of God. Let's go on to a second theme. The second theme is gradual likeness or likening or conformity to Jesus Christ. She talks about this a lot as well. Here's a quote, again, from her prayer to the Holy Trinity. Quote, but I feel my weakness, and I ask you to clothe me with yourself, to identify my soul with all the movements of your soul, to overwhelm me, to possess me, to substitute yourself for me, that my life may be but a radiance of your life, end quote. At that point in the prayer, she's speaking to Christ, and she's asking Christ to identify her with him and to take possession of her and even to substitute himself, to substitute her for herself for him. So, and she wants her life to be his life, and he simply wants him to shine from her. That's a, a high degree of awareness of being likened or conformed to Jesus Christ. But she goes on. Here's, here's another quote. Consuming fire, spirit of love, come upon me and create in my soul a kind of incarnation of the word. That I may be another humanity for him in which he can renew his whole mystery. Now that is an amazing statement created my soul a kind of incarnation of the word? That's exactly right. That's what an invisible mission of the word and spirit does. It's a reproduction within the soul of the eternal processions of the word and spirit within the Trinity and a likeness and a conformity to the word incarnate turned towards the Father and offering himself in sacrifice to the Father. She gets it exactly right from a theological point of view, even though she never formally studied theology or any kind of higher theology. It, she was able to learn this or pick up on this, again, through listening to preaching, praying with the scriptures, doing Lexio Divina, reading St. Paul especially, praying and interacting with the persons of the Holy Trinity, living within her and interacting with them by faith, hope, and love, and the Spirit's gifts within her. <clears throat> so here's a third theme in St. Elizabeth, and the theme is predestination. Now, what's so interesting about St. Elizabeth of the Trinity is that she rediscovered the beauty, the mystery, the grandeur, the marvels of this mystery of predestination. A lot of people are afraid to talk about this or are scared of it, uh, not St. Elizabeth, and she also is quite clear that this is not just a Calvinist thing. This is Catholic teaching. This is traditional Catholic teaching. This is the doctrine of the faith. 
And she is aware that the indwelling she enjoys, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity that she enjoys in the depths of her soul, and also that conformity to Christ that she has, that all of this is a work of God in her. And God is working in her, and he is carrying out and implementing his eternal designs for her soul and for the church, for the formation of the church. He's working all of that in her, and he's carrying it out from eternity in time, and her life and her grace, her enjoyment of God within her, her, uh, her the presence of him in her soul, and her continual um, union and growth and union with the word and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, all of that is a gift of God who's carrying out eternal designs within her. Here's what she writes to uh, a childhood um, a friend that she knew who's outside the monastery. She's writing this from inside the monastery. Here's what she says. Quote, my Frambois, when we contemplate our eternal predestination, visible things seem so worthless. Listen to St. Paul. Now she's going to quote St. Paul. Those whom God has foreknown, he has also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he has known, he has also called. She goes on to say, it is baptism which has made you a child of adoption, which has stamped you with the seal of the Holy Trinity. So notice how she sees baptism as the effect in time of the predestination or the eternal designs that are in God. She goes on, quote, and those whom he has called, he has also justified. How often you have been justified by the sacrament of penance and by all those touches of God in your soul without your even being aware of it. So you see, she's, she sees herself as living under the influence of God and God as continually touching the soul and carrying out works in the soul, doing things there, justifying us, rectifying our souls, putting things in order, setting things right, healing us, elevating us, uniting us with God, the triune God, more and more, that's all his work in us, which he is carrying out. And these touches are coming to us from out of his eternal designs. He's planned to do this, in you and me from all eternity. And because of his plans, he's doing it. That is what awaits you in eternity, she says. Actually, she goes on to say, those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. That is what awaits you in eternity. So as God continues to work in our soul more and more, he is bringing each of us down the road towards him in eternity, okay? Here is he's bringing those whom he's called and chosen towards him in eternity, okay? But she, she puts this in at the end. She says, remember that our degree of glory will depend on the degree of grace in which God finds us at the moment of our death. So if at the moment of death, a person has no grace in his or her soul, lives in unrepentant mortal sin, for example, Okay, then there's no glory. 
if a person has just a little bit of uh, sanctifying grace habitually rooted in the soul, then the person will have a little bit of glory. But if the person has a high degree of grace uh, habitually rooted in the depths of his or her soul, there will be a high degree of glory. So what is her parting word of advice? Quote, allow him to complete his work of predestination in you. So in other words, you and I are like uh, works of art. And God, according to his eternal designs, is working and shaping each of us according to this exemplar he sees in Christ. And he's forming us and shaping us into him. And he's working in our souls, touching us according to these plans for our soul. He's giving us grace upon grace. And we are called to allow him to complete his work of predestination, to just let him do his thing. Let him have his way in us and in our lives and in our hearts. Allow him to complete his work of predestination in you. I will close with just uh, a few points about crucial dispositions that we need uh, in order to live this mystery of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity that St. Elizabeth of the Trinity talks about. So what do we need in order to live this? Well, we need, first of all, faith. It's the exercise of faith and the act of faith that establishes us and keeps us in contact with the Holy Trinity in the depths of our soul, in our hearts. So faith is the foundation of the entire supernatural edifice, St. Thomas Aquinas says, and it's faith that, yeah, keeps us in contact with him. So faith is the first disposition. There's also vigilance. Um, she says, you will never be commonplace if you are vigilant in love. So being aware of temptations that come against us and distractions, things that would take us away from being with God. Love does not want that. Love does not go for that. So love remains vigilant against anything that would take us away from the mystery of the Trinity dwelling within us. And the third disposition is simplicity. We don't need a lot of psychological complexity and reflection and self-analysis and self-preoccupation and wondering where we are. Is this really happening on the road? No, nope. no, nope. we need just simplicity, simplicity, focus on God, focus on the Holy Trinity, enjoy his presence within you, enjoy him by faith, enjoy him by charity in all simplicity and love. The fourth thing we need is silence. She talks a lot about silence and she was a profound practitioner of silence. We need a lot of outer silence in our lives. We need to withdraw from busyness and noise and we need to give ourselves extended periods of time of silence every day. Bishop Fulton Sheen used to say that everyone Everyone in the church, including lay people, everyone, everyone should have minimum of 15 minutes of silence every day. Every lay person, he says, should have 15 minutes of pure silence every day. He thought priests should do a holy hour each day. But 15 minutes of silence every day is an absolute minimum. I've had a lot of people come to me and say, that's not nearly enough. We need more than 15 minutes of pure silence every day. I would agree, but according to Fulton Sheen, 15 minutes is the minimum. Now that's just outer silence. 
There's also a kind of inner silence that we need, which is to quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, sort of shut down the interior chit chat and the rumblings and grumblings that go on and just strive to peacefully, gently and lovingly be with the Lord quietly, internally quietly and listening to him. And last of all, we need surrender. That is to say yes to God or like Mother Mary, let it be done to me according to your word. And this disposition of fiat or thy will be done, let it be done to me according to your word. This is allowing God to complete his work of predestination in us, to touch our souls, to give us his grace, to form us and reform us and renew us and continue to breathe his Holy Spirit in us and illuminate our minds with the light of his truth so that we know him and love him and enjoy him more and more and more as we go on our way back to God. So all of that is a description of, I think, this spirituality of communion in which the the heart has a kind of contemplative awareness of the Trinity dwelling within us. And that is what every one of us needs to grow in in order for the whole church to become who the church is meant to be on earth. That's the vision of John Paul II. The more the church becomes awake and aware of this grace of the indwelling, the more the church will thrive and grow and become all that the church is meant to be. So we'll leave it at that. And uh, now we'll open it up for questions. Thank you, Father James. Um, We have a first question from Colby from UVA. He has his hand up. He's ready. Okay, Colby, go ahead. Hello, Father. Thank you so much for that talk. It was wonderful. Thank Um, you. My question has to do uh, with the role that free will plays in God's work of grace in our soul as regards our initial conversion, persevering in grace, growing in virtue, and then committing mortal or venial sins. And then I'm just wondering, like, how can um, God's plan, God's will not be fulfilled in some? And like, if it is God who predestines things and um, arranges things for the good of all, um, then how can some be lost? How can some be eternally damned? Um, obviously, it's not his his will, but I don't know if, if that's- Yes, so, so there's a lot of questions there and a lot of deep questions. So let's start, because you have one, which is about the nature of divine movement in the soul, then a second about sin, or, and then a third about uh, a number of questions about predestination. Let's just start with the first one. So when God, God moves us, God is the universal cause and the first mover of all things other than himself. And God can move us. And here's the amazing, wonderful thing. God can move us and move our hearts to perform free acts. Okay. He can do that. And his action, the act by which he moves us to perform free acts is not an act of violence, as if, it, as if he was some kind of external cause moving us in some manner contrary to our nature, because it's, it's under the nature of all things to be moved by God, okay? So it's not contrary to our nature. And also when God moves us to perform free acts, he does so by working through the very powers that he creates, 
the powers of the soul for free choice. So first he inflames the, or he illuminates the intellect to see something as good. And that can happen in a, ver in a variety of ways. It can happen through preaching, for example, a person hears something, or a person may just have a suggestion in it from an angel or from spiritual reading or from uh, just uh, spontaneous thought or from a virtue, we could say. It kind of bubbles up. A person may think, yeah, let's go do a holy hour or let's go do, uh, let's say a rosary or let's go to the sacrament of penance or something like that. So first, the, the intellect is illumined to see a certain course of action as good. And the will is inflamed with love or inclination. God inclines the person towards that action, okay? So God moves the will precisely by inclining the heart according to his word. This is what it says in the Psalms. Incline my heart according to your word of God. Sometimes the translations are incline my heart according to your will of God. So God inclines the heart. And he inclines the heart in such a way that the person freely chooses out of love to pursue a certain course of action or a certain good, okay? Now that's the story that we tell about what we could say, good courses of action, holy courses of action, saving courses of action. And the story is pretty much the same at the beginning, like with the initial conversion, as it is along the way, because a person who's locked in sin and turned away from God, God can melt their heart and inflame their will and can move the person to contrition and repentance. I mean, he did it with, say, St. Paul, for example. St. Paul is the great example. He's opposing the church. He's persecuting the church. And then all of a sudden, God just changes him. Okay? So God can do that. He changes hearts. So he can do it at the beginning, and he can do it in the middle, and he can do it towards the end. And St. Paul is as clear as can be, this is totally gratuitous. It was not deserved or earned on his part. So the initial movement, Godward, in a saving way, is always totally undeserved and gratuitous. When you're talking about further saving acts down the road, once a person has already been justified in this living in grace, then there's something called congruous merit, and a person could congruously merit further graces. But truth to tell, I wouldn't count too much on congruously meriting further graces. I would count more on asking for them and on sacraments and on the prayers of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the prayers of other people. So uh, that's the story about how God works holy things, works holy free choices, saving free choices in us. Now, when it comes to turning to evil things, sinful things, and turning away, that's a totally different story. There is no preceding action of God that moves a person away, okay? All of the action that moves a person away comes from or originates from the creature himself, there is, of course, the general concurrence with all with the powers of the soul that God has, or St. Thomas actually calls it auxilium. So God does keep your will moving in a general way and keeps your intellect working. So your intellect and will are working. But given that first gift, which we have by nature, the person essentially abuses that gift 
And from out of that ability, simply of his own accord, initiates a course of action, we could say off the road of salvation or off the, the narrow way that leads to life. The person freely turns off the road by his own, by his own choice. And that's the person's own free choice, okay? So if the person is saved, the person is saved by a free choice induced by grace or moved by grace. And if a person is not saved, it's because the person turned off the road of his own accord and freely persevered in unrepentance to the end. But that's by the person's own choice. So the classic statement is that if we're saved, we're saved by the grace of God. If we are damned, we are damned by our own fault. And uh, those, the sinners and those who reject God's grace are those who set themselves up as prima causa mali, first causes of evil. Okay. So I'll, that's just to answer your first question. Now, if we, I mean, if I could speak in a general way to your second and third question, I mean, how could a person not be saved? I mean, the answer is going to be because the person freely and of his own accord initiates a move off the path and away from the grace of God. Could God bring the person back? Yes, he could. Does it would be a it would be a gratuitous grace and a mercy to do so because all of this is undeserved. And it's in it's compatible with the justice of God that he tolerates this. And it does seem from our experience that he tolerates this. So the part of the mystery of God's eternal designs is that he tolerates sin. He tolerates rejection. He tolerates people turning away from him. And he may very well tolerate people turning away from him forever. Those are good questions, hard questions. That's why I went into a little detail on them. Okay, we have another question. Uh, how do we dispose ourselves well to receive grace without falling into Pelagianism? since it still requires some action on our part to be properly disposed to receive grace. Okay, well, I'd be careful. There's the initial grace that we receive. So for example, if we were baptized as infants, that's the initial grace that, that's the initial grace that we receive. I mean, perhaps there are actual graces that are given to us in a, prior to our, in our baptism in our infancy. But once a person is in grace, I mean, that first grace, I mean, to be baptized is totally gratuitous. The person doesn't earn that, deserve that, does not dispose himself to it or anything like that, okay? So that so the first grace is God disposes us to receive it, okay? Now, as God gives us his grace and he continues to, he gives us that first grace, he disposes us to receive it, okay? He continues to dispose us to receive more and more. So what kicks in after a person is living in God's grace or after graces have been given, we have said like with respect to a previous grace that's been given to us, St. Thomas has a principle. It's a common principle that's in the theological environment and in the tradition of his day and, you know, down to our own day, that God does not deny his grace to those who do what they can. 
Another way to phrase it would be like this. God does not deny his grace to those who do what they can by previous graces they have received. So if by virtue of a previous grace you have already received, you act by that grace, what you do is dispose yourself to receive another grace. We give a few simple examples. Sunday comes along and uh, you want to go to Holy, you want to go to mass. You want to go celebrate uh, or you know, participate in the, in the mass and you want to receive Holy Communion. That's a grace. So there's your first grace. So on, on that grace, if a person goes with that, follows that inclination, yields, okay, the person has done what he or she can by grace, God's going to give further grace. How might that go? Well, the person goes to mass, and then while the person is at mass, God will give further graces. I want you to be quiet. I want you to pray. I want you to prepare to celebrate the sacrifice. Or he might give the person a special light during the readings or the homily, or the person might, so the person might understand something or be moved, or the person might be moved to make special acts of, of thanksgiving for the gift of the presence of God in the Eucharist. If the person acts on those graces, goes with them, or yields to them, then God will give still further grace, because God does not deny his grace to those who do what they can. And so when the person receives Holy Communion, the grace that's given through the Holy Communion is one that has been prepared for by those preceding graces and the person doing what he or she can by grace. Okay. So I don't, I hope that uh, speaks to, to the question, but um, we can dispose ourselves in a non-Pelagian way precisely by going with and acting on those graces we have already been given. So if you feel an inclination to go into silence, do it. If you sense an inclination to pray, do it. If you sense an inclination to pick up the rosary, to do the stations of the cross, or just spend some time reading scripture, do it. Uh, the doing it, then you, you do those things, you're disposing yourself by a preceding grace and you're disposing yourself to receive a further grace that's coming down the road. I can tell you this as an example from my own life. Like I would say that all the years that I spent in formation as a Dominican, all the graces I received that led me to the novitiate, all the graces that I received during the novitiate, all the graces I received um, after I made to make my vows, then after I made my vows, all through the years of studies, all of those graces were preparations of formation to receive the grace of ordination to the priesthood. And uh, once I received ordination to the priesthood, the process did not stop. God is preparing me and giving me graces and preparing me for further graces yet to come. So God does not deny his grace to those who do what they can by grace. So you said that it's not in our nature to have a relation with God. An immediate, um, an immediate personal relationship. Relation. Right. So that comes from Aquinas talking about God's simplicity, right? Um, and how we can't have a real relation with God, right? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. That's one among other considerations. It also has to do with the powers of our soul. Our powers are not proportionate to that, to such a thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So that partly answers my question. Um, yeah. but my question was going to be, um, does this created grace set us, you know, in a real relation or, you know, well, let's distinguish between relation in the categorical sense of the term. So the, among in Aristotle's 10 categories, there's the category of relation. Mm -hmm. And then there's another term in Latin called habitudinous, which is a kind of relationship. That's how we would say it in English. So I want to draw a distinct distinction between relation in the predicamental sense and relationship, which is like friendship. And friendship is what grace gives us, what charity gives us. It gives us this relationship, but that's not a real relation in the predicamental sense, but that's really not, that metaphysical point is not really of much psychological or spiritual significance. Some people seem to think it's a great spiritual significance and they use it as an argument against divine simplicity and the impassibility of God and all those sorts of objections. I think that once you understand the difference between the metaphysical vocabulary of Aquinas and the precisions he uses with some terms like relation, and the looseness and the psychological sort of way in which we talk about relationships, you're talking about two different things. Okay, very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Other, uh, thanks so much for your talk. Uh, this question is, I guess, a little bit less about the subject matter, um, which is fantastic. Thanks so much. Um, but a little bit more about uh, the charism of the Dominicans in relation to kind of this idea of contemplation and um, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. And obviously like this is, you know, what every Christian um, and every Catholic needs to aspire to is kind of like this community, um, sorry, the spirituality of communion um, that JP2 talks about. But I guess yep. how do you see that kind of formed in your own charism as a Dominican? Uh, okay, well, that's a great question. So all Dominicans are baptized individuals, right? So we have uh, the grace. I mean, we hope as long as we're living in a state of grace, right? We the, the, we enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in our souls, right? Like all Christians do. And we, like all Christian, I mean, all Christians, all who are living in a state of grace, and the form of life that's been set up by St. Dominic and, the, and approved by the church and that has been lived down through the centuries, this form of life is marvelously suitable and adapted to growing in an awareness of the presence of God dwelling within our souls and to interacting with God who speaks to us by a divine revelation and by coming to uh, know him more in divine through divine revelation, coming to love him more and be increasingly more inflamed with love for him. And so that reality and the mystery of the indwelling of the Holy Trinity grows and grows and grows through our life of prayer and study, liturgical observances, the offering of the sacrifice of the mass and holy communion and the rosary and, and, and all of it and the life together in common and the vows, all of it kind of works together in a sort of orchestrated uh, kind of conspiracy to, to sort of advance the soul in truth and love and the work of mercy that we are called to carry out and, and are established to carry out is precisely the proclamation of the truth, the preaching of the truth, uh, which are works of spiritual works of mercy, right? To instruct those who are ignorant, to be patient with those who are in error, to counsel the doubtful. Um, 
So those are all acts of charity flowing from charity. And the preaching apostolate that we carry out is all um, a work of charity. And so uh, the whole life is really designed and all of its elements are in place and they all work together. They're orchestrated to, to serve the soul of each friar so that each friar can live this mystery of baptism, the grace of baptism and this indwelling of the Holy Trinity with increasingly greater, excuse me, increasingly greater depth and intensity as time goes on. Say nothing, I mean, sacred study is a wonderful means um, that, that, that serves this, this mystery. Prayer and study in a silent priory full of Dominican brothers, we're all doing the same thing. I mean, what could be better? Um, thank you, Father. I had a kind of question going off of that, where the idea of infused contemplation in traditions outside of the Dominican or Dominican yes. is safe for some, whereas there seems to be a broader understanding of mysticism particular to St. Thomas and the Dominicans. Okay, that's a great question. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. So yes, there's the Carmelite tradition, which is the most commonly known in the West. And the Carmelites, especially St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila as well, speak about infused contemplation. And they do that in order to distinguish certain, uh, act, let's call them acts of prayer or kinds of acts of prayer that come to a person over and above uh, what is called acquired, the, the acquired contemplation or, or acts that we carry out in a human mode by our own kind of initiative, okay? And they describe the conditions and the predispositions that we need to receive infused contemplation and the sort of journey of purification that God walks the soul through in order to prepare the soul by grace to receive what they call infused contemplation. And infused contemplation has a, um, uh, a lot of marvels and wonders that go with it. Again, we're not necessarily talking about extraordinary phenomenon. We're just talking about profound uh, union, knowledge, and love of God, okay? But uh, after, as the centuries have gone on, Thomists uh, have looked at that literature, especially Garagou Lagrange, Reginald Garagou Lagrange, Juan Arantero, and others, looked at, at the Carmelite literature, studied it carefully, valued it, and they asked themselves the question, how, does the, how do the theological principles of St. Thomas Aquinas explain this or account for this? And the answer that they gave was that what the Carmelites call infused contemplation is really, in, it is in St. Thomas, he just doesn't call it infused contemplation. And what it is, is the person living, acting, and above all, praying under the influence of the Holy Spirit, operating through the gifts of the Spirit. And the more deeply and more radically, more profoundly, the Holy Spirit operates through the gifts, the more and more, yeah, well, radical and profound the person's prayer will become. Here's where we would have to spend some time distinguishing between virtues and gifts. In St. Thomas, the virtues are dispositions for moral action, 
or theological action, like with the theological virtues or moral action. But there is a way in which they um, are, are left to our initiative and they operate according to promptings of our own reason. And we carry them out and exercise these virtues in a human mode, St. Thomas says. So, I mean, for example, you can, you can make an act of faith anytime you want. I mean, you can just recite the creed. You just have to say, hey, you know, it'd be a great idea to pray right now. I'm going to say a rosary. Let's recite the Apostles' Creed. Let's, let's get going here. Um, so an act of faith is left to your own initiative or an act of charity. You, know, you think to yourself, well, I should go spend some time volunteering and, you know, doing something for the poor. I'm going to go spend some time working, volunteering at a soup kitchen, let's say. You can go do that. And you can do that if at your own initiative. So these, this is how life according to the virtues works. It's sort of um, the actions, we need the virtues to carry out the actions, but the acts themselves are in a way, they come from the promptings of reason or reason illuminated by faith. And the initiative is really ours to, to undertake these things, even though uh, you know, it takes actual grace to do so, okay? The gifts are different. When it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the initiative is not ours. The Spirit blows where he wills. And he comes and he blows through the gifts. And when he does so, he blows where he wants and when he wants and the way he wants. And we are much, the initiative is not ours. We are much more moved than mover. And there's something about being moved by the spirit through the work or through the act, through the gifts of the spirit in which it's, it's not really like a human mode of operating. It's a divine mode, St. Thomas says. So it's a divine mode of operation and we are under the influence of the spirit. And um, yeah, the spirit does what he wishes. So when a person starts to become, we could say dominated, by the spirit acting and operating through the gifts, that's when you start to get more and more and more of the phenomena described experientially or psycho from a psychological point of view by the Carmelites. That was the answer, uh, that was the answer of the Thomas of the 20th century to your question. Uh, or we could say Thomas of the first half of the 20th century. I'm not sure what more recent ones have said. I think there's kind of a discussion about it, but uh, that's a standard sort of Thomistic answer. Let's put it that way. Okay. I, I want to make one follow-up point to what you said, though, because I think the Thomist answer is very interesting because what it basically means is that everything that goes into the mystical life, everything that's in all, all that wonderful stuff that's in the Carmelites, it's all given to a person in baptism. And baptism, in baptism, a person is already called, at least by a remote call, to like the fullness of the, of the contemplative and mystical life. Mm -hmm. So a very important point I want to make because there were, there were theologians, you know, through the last couple of centuries, let's say, and in the first half of the 20th century, especially, but before then as well, who are going around saying all that stuff that's in the Carmelites, all that mystical stuff, that's not for everybody. 
That's not for all Christians. That's not for all the baptized. That's like a special sort of uh, other kind of track. They're like in another class of people. Um, But the rest of us are given a grace in our baptism that's like sufficient to live the life of observing the Ten Commandments, and that's it. Okay. And Dominicans uh, pushed back against that thesis very hard. The followers of St. Thomas did, Father Juan Aaron Taro and Gary Goulagrange. And they did so because they realized that the progress and growth of souls in holiness is at stake. Like if you hear, for example, Martina, if you hear me say, you know, that stuff in the Carmelites, all that deep mystical union, that's not really for everybody. Uh, that's not, yeah, it's just not really for everybody. And it's probably not for you statistically. Um, so you've been given enough grace to just kind of live according to the commandments. Does that, how does that make you feel? Does that inspire you? No. Does that encourage you? Does that motivate you? No, it does not. But when you hear the Thomist preaching that says, no, 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 that stuff is not just for us, an elite. And what we're given in our baptism is not just enough to keep the minimum 10 commandments. We're given a seed of glory, of eternal life, and it's meant to grow. And we're meant to become all united with the Holy Trinity and immersed in this amazing knowledge and love and enjoyment of the Holy Trinity. And it's meant to grow and grow and grow until your whole life is consumed with God. And that's not for an elite class, that's for absolutely every Christian. Every Christian is called to that, including you. Now, how do you feel? Much better. <laughs> yeah, you feel much better. You're motivated, okay? And there's hope, right? Which means you're on your, your way to that, okay? Now what's needed is an intention to actually pursue it, okay? Yeah. But this debate between these two camps about this question was settled at the Second Vatican Council. And the council declared what's called the universal call to holiness. That's an expression that's used in the documents. And you've probably heard it. It's a kind of buzzword or an expression that's thrown around in the church. Universal call to holiness. But a lot of people do not understand what that means and the depth of it and the significance of it because they do not understand it against the background of this debate that took place about the spiritual life prior to the council. So for a lot of people, when they hear the expression, the universal call to holiness, they think it just means the universal call to like keep the Ten Commandments or to like be well behaved and to be like a a decent kind of person. But that's not what it means. What it really means is there's a universal call among all the baptized to go all the way in the spiritual life and enter into the height and the depths of mystical union with God. That's what it means. That makes more sense. This is uh, another question going off that it might get. Sure. Might take us way off about the degrees of contemplation. <laughs> okay. If there are any. All right. So uh, there's a, I mean, if you're thinking of Carmelites, okay, you're not going to find any kind of elaborate sort of uh, discussion like that in St. Thomas. But he has a different, under, we could say, a, a, just a, how should I put it, a more straightforward, simple understanding of contemplation. So for St. Thomas and for the tradition that he's working with at his time, contemplation just means beholding God, you know, looking at God, 
-hmm. So it's just intuitus simplex veritatem. So just looking at the simple, looking at the simple truth. And what that means is it's looking or gazing as distinct from trying to figure out and kind of discursively reason your way through about. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of meta, so that, that discursive reasoning or attempt to figure out, he calls that meditation, meditatio. Mm -hmm. So meditatio is when you're, you're reading and you're thinking things through and you're, and you're trying to understand, make connections, drawing connections, this place in scripture, that place in scripture, this spiritual truth, that spiritual truth, trying to put them together, make connections. But there comes a point, hopefully, when we stop trying to figure things out, draw all these connections, but we simply quiet down and gaze and look and behold. And just, yeah, gay. So, so when people are like really in love with each other, they're quite happy to just look at each other. They like to study each other too. So they'll study each other, but they will also uh, suspend studying each other and just be captivated by each other in a restful gaze. And that's contemplation. That's how Aquinas understands it. Now the contemplation that that we takes place supernaturally is um, the, the catechism calls it contemplative prayer. And it defines it as a gaze of faith, which is exactly correct. I mean, that, that, is, that is exactly how St. Thomas understands it. And that's why the, the, the authors of the catechism went down that road, that road. It's a gaze of faith. So when a person has faith and is in that immediate non-inferential knowing of God and simply affirms the truth, the person can simply gaze, behold God by faith. You don't see, it's not like a math problem where you see, you know, how the, the answer comes out of the, the, the principles. So it's, it's, it's a beholding and intuiting without seeing. Okay. So it's supernatural gazing. And when that takes place in love, you can have a phenomenon with God that's very much analogous to people who are in love with each other and simply gazing upon each other. At least yeah, love gazing. And that is a that is an, a very apt description of how the spirit's gift of wisdom works. When two people are looking at each other with love and through love, then there's that love gazing. Now, can that love gazing with God deepen? Absolutely. Can it grow? Yes. Are there reaches of it? Yes. Does Aquinas talk about that? Not very much. Do Carmelites talk about that? Oh, yeah. That's what the whole thing is kind of trying to spell out. Okay. Thank you. Yep. That was helpful. I yep. think that's the last of our questions. Um, okay. We have some more complicated ones if you want to. Yeah, I've got time. I'll hang out. There's a couple really bigger ones. Some of these descriptions. I may change my mind after I hear the question. Okay. But... Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> some of these descriptions of the participating life in the light of the gift of the indwelling Trinity sound akin to writings on hesychasm. Hesychasm. Yes. Yeah. 
how if at all are the two different how does okay that's a great question okay so for the sake of the uh listeners hesychasm is a particular form of spirituality that grew up in the christian east so among our greek-speaking uh fellow christians um and also russian for that matter and others on the eastern side of the church hesychasm is a very important notion and a spiritual practice and there's various ways we can describe it because there's their version of the story and our version of the story and all kinds of uh discussions about this but has has in in greek basically means stillness or silence okay and to make a long story short a lot of the greek-speaking fathers uh and later uh greek-speaking monks like gregory palamas uh, who claims that to be following simply following the fathers they basically take this notion of silence or stillness ezekiel and they, and they say this is the center of the spiritual life and they basically think of of the spiritual life as one long journey into silence and as the person journeys in, into the silence with god the person lives in silence prays in silence um, prays the jesus prayer as a sort of as a means or a, a method if we could call it that for entering into this this but as a person follows this hesychastic sort of line of development journeying into the silence the prayer becomes increasingly more wordless and increasingly more imageless and increasingly more non-conceptual to such an extent that the person enters into an immediate, direct, experiential knowledge of God. And they have various ways of describing it. Sometimes they describe it as um, a person is basically like restored to the condition that Adam was in before the fall. That's one way they sometimes describe it. Sometimes they describe it as being in the condition that Peter, James, and John were in on the Mount of Transfiguration when they beheld the, un, they call the uncreated light of God. Okay. So that's hesychastic spirituality. And all I just did was give you a, just a little tiny snapshot of it. I have a paper that I'm working on or I ha, that I've submitted for a publication about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and Gregory Palamas on the prayer of the Blessed Virgin Mary that goes into all of this uh, and gives a kind of a deeper, more detailed description. And what I want to, the point I want to make is that um, there's a great deal in common between the hesychastic monks of the East and St. Thomas Aquinas and the theology of the West. So everything that's cool and good and mysterious and, and mystical and wonderful in that uh, light from the East there, uh, we've got it, okay? And it's in St. Thomas. So there's the mind and the heart, and then you've got the Spirit's gift of wisdom and contemplative prayer and immediate encounter with God. Uh, there's perception, not vision, but perception of God himself and this experiential knowledge. So yes, it is very much in, in, in that way, like uh, hesychastic spirituality. And let's not forget, St. Thomas Aquinas knew about this. 
He was raised in a Benedictine monastery himself, starting at the age of five until he was a teenager. We know that he also read a text every day called the Conferences of John Cashin, which is a bunch of Egyptian and Eastern fathers from the fourth century. And he read these conferences that were handed on in John Cashin. They were daily reading for Thomas Aquinas, his biographers tell us, and they talk about a lot of this. So Aquinas was quite well aware of this. And he thought um, this is, yeah, what Christian life is. And this is where the spiritual life goes. Mm-hmm. And arguably, one could say that he himself entered into it after he stopped writing at the end of his life. Okay, but that's another hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. There's some people, though, I, I just want to make a point. Some people point out that there are significant differences between the Hesychasts and Thomas and or Thomism, especially when it comes to the prayer being imageless and wordless and non-conceptual. To, there is a controversy about the degree to which that is possible in this life by nature and by grace. And there are some big uh, questions and controversies about that. And there was a big question about whether the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw the uncreated light on Mount Tabor. Mm-hmm. So depending on the specifics that you get into, this can be, uh, there can there can open up some pretty pretty significant differences. But I'm all in favor of saying, let's emphasize common common ground first. Mm-hmm. 